Thank you very much, Alex. I'm currently in uh, Crescent. Actually, I'm in the church building, so if there's an emergency, I might have to leave midway through the, the sermon, but it's uh, really good to be able to uh, join with you and just reflect once more on Easter. Uh, we've had a great series, haven't we, explaining Easter, uh, thinking a little bit more about um, some of the characters, the key characters in the Easter story. And I've felt really privileged to be looking at Mary Magdalene. It's been a, a real joy um, as the Lord has, has spoken to me and built me up uh, through looking into her life and character. And I'm excited to share a little bit of that with you. One of the things I did as I was thinking about this talk is I typed Mary Magdalene into Amazon to see if there were any books written about her. And it turned out there were a lot of books written about her. I got over 2,000 results. Um, and among these, there were um, well, there was actually a movie from 2018, which was said to be depicting her life. There was a book written in 2019, and it was titled Mary Magdalene Revealed, The First Apostle, Her Feminist Gospel, and the Christianity We Haven't Tried Yet. Many of the books were along that kind of line, works of fiction, a combination of superstition, myth, and legend with very little resemblance whatsoever to the genuine facts of her life. Gnostic heresies, including the so-called Gospel of Mary, maintain that Mary was the only figure who could truly understand Christ's teaching. And this was said to put her at odds with the Apostle Peter. Another blasphemous heresy that was popularized by Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, which I'm sure many of you have heard of, uh, that was back in 2003, was the claim that Mary was married to Jesus, and the book then associates her, associates her with the beloved disciple that we hear about in John's Gospel. And what I concluded was that there is a lot of nonsense, ugly misinterpretation, or just pure vandalism of the facts. Uh, and, and to the extent that the beautiful story of Mary's life actually gets lost in this melee. So I want to spend just a short time tonight seeking to understand and communicate the truth of what happen in Mary's life using scripture, the unshakable, trustworthy word of God. And I want to speak under two simple headings, two headings that maybe you can memorize off the back of this talk tonight. The first is from darkness to discipleship, from darkness to discipleship. And the second is from heartbreak to daybreak. So from darkness to discipleship and from heartbreak to daybreak. So let's think about that first heading to begin with, from darkness to discipleship. The first time we read of Mary in the Gospels is in Luke chapter 8. Let me read the first three verses of chapter 8 for you. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chesa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. I think it's really cool, actually, really remarkable, that even from this brief reference, we learn a great deal about Mary's life, don't we? To begin with, we learn her surname, Magdalene, and that suggests she was from a small but affluent fishing city, uh, which found itself on the, the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. The town was called Magdala. And I looked into the city. Um, there's still some kind of ruins there today you can go and visit. And it was known, apparently, particularly for the quality of its salted fish, as well as its impressive Roman marketplace. It, it had a synagogue in the town that had a mosaic floor 
which was very beautiful and very unique for a city of its kind. It was an affluent place. And that maybe tells us something about Mary Magdalene herself. Just five and a half up, five and a half miles up the road uh, was Capernaum. And that, as many of you will know, was the home of Peter and effectively the base for Jesus's Galilean ministry. But one thing that's notable about the region of Galilee was a particular kind of darkness. It seems to have been a hotbed for demonic activity. Uh, And one of the reasons we can say that is because in the Gospels, we read of multiple instances of demonic possession in and around the region of Galilee. And the symptoms of such possession were varied, but always disturbing. And I actually did a little... Uh, exercise where I went through a lot of the references to demon possession, particularly in and around uh, Galilee, and just looked at some of the kind of symptoms uh, of this kind of possession. And it was really uh, quite disturbing to read some of those things. In Matthew 8, for example, we read of two demon-possessed men who lived in a graveyard. And God's word says they were so violent that no one could pass along that route. They were aggressive. They were isolated. They were dysfunctional. Demonic possession had effectively ripped them away from their communities, from their friends, from their family. And these men were tortured shells, hollow shells. Uh, In Matthew 9, we read of uh, another man who was possessed by a demon. And he was unable to speak as a consequence of his uh, possession. He He was a mute. Matthew 10, a man who was blind and mute because he was possessed by a demon. Matthew 17, a boy who was caused to have seizures and fall into fire or water because of the demon that possessed him. In Mark 5, we read a particularly horrifying account of another man who lived among the tombs. Uh, This man couldn't even be subdued by chains. He was tormented and tortured. He would cry out and even cut himself with stones. How awful is that? Uh, He'd been reduced to nothingness. Even his own name had been replaced with a description of the demonic forces within him. He said, my name is Legion, for we are many. And so just in reviewing those select uh, instances, we start to to develop a picture of what life was like for someone who was possessed by a demon. It was a cruel, pitiless existence, wasn't it? I think it's, it's so apparent just how filled it was with agitation and restlessness and isolation, violence, uh, torment, self-harm even, physical debilitation, loneliness, and darkness. These people had been reduced to hollow men and women, nothing but houses for dark supernatural forces. And Mary Magdalene, Luke tells us, had been possessed by seven such demons, seven demons. So if one demon could utterly destroy someone, what could seven do? Uh, I'm sure many of you know that number is often associated with completeness in scripture, the number seven. And it suggests that Mary's life was utterly consumed by satanic power. Every facet, every aspect of it consumed by dark supernatural forces. And in some ways, it's, it's a mercy that scripture doesn't tell us the specifics of the horrors these demons had brought about in her life. But this quick review of, of some of these other accounts of demonic possession demonstrates it would have been a hopeless existence. Mary would have been consumed by darkness, isolated, alone, tormented. 
Then she met Jesus. And we don't know the exact circumstances, but we know that the Lord utterly liberated Mary from the darkness within her. We know from these other accounts that Jesus would have cast out the demons in an instant. Light and peace would have flooded into Mary's life. Her her mind would have been restored, her personality given back to her, any physical impairment healed, her torment replaced with a stillness, a tranquility, a serenity that only Jesus could bring to pass. And you can see how much she valued that transformation that the Lord had brought about in her life. She loved him deeply for saving her soul, for for forgiving her sins and giving her life. And delivered from this darkness, we read that she became a loyal and devoted disciple of Jesus Christ. Luke tells us that she traveled around with the 12 uh, apostles and some of the other women following Jesus from one town and village to the next, financially supporting the work of mission. I I mentioned that Magdala was an affluent place, and it seems Mary came from a well-off background. And now in her right mind, she was able to use those resources, channel those resources into gospel work. What a transformation from a hopeless existence to a productive existence full of life and vitality. So what a beginning to Mary's story. But the next heading I want to speak under is from heartbreak to daybreak, because there was more sadness to come in Mary's life. There was more darkness, if you like, because the next time we read of Mary Magdalene in the Gospels, events have taken a heartbreaking turn. Let's read from John chapter 19. Do turn with me to John 19, if you have a Bible uh, with you. John 19 and verse 25. And it says this. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Here we see Jesus nailed to a wooden cross the one who had delivered Mary from captivity and oppression, liberated her from darkness, now hangs in the darkness with nails through his hands and through his feet. And at this stage, it seems Mary is close enough to the cross. Mary Magdalene is close enough to the cross to hear some of his last words. And what is our Lord doing characteristically, beautifully? He is still looking out for those he loves. He's ensuring his mother, also called Mary, will be cared for in his absence. Powerful words, aren't they? Heart-wrenching words. The injustice of it all, the Lord hanging there, being crucified for crimes he did not commit. The one who had flooded Mary's life with joy and hope now hangs dying. And to Mary looking on, it must have seemed like the darkness she'd been liberated from was, was somehow once again returning to her life. Maybe it seemed to her like the dark forces had triumphed ultimately, had Satan had the last word in Mary's life. As she looked at her Lord, her liberator, hanging there in the darkness, how could she not feel despondent and heartbroken? And it seems as if this this group of of women, uh, it seemed to also include uh, John, 
uh, the writer of John's Gospel, were pushed back. They retreated from the cross, maybe because of the hostile crowd, maybe because of the horror of standing so close was just too great. Uh, but we read in some of the other accounts that then they watched from a distance. After being near the cross, they watched from a distance. And they looked on as their Lord suffered in the darkness. And Mary was a, a loyal disciple to the bitter end. That's one thing that struck me about Mary as I looked into her. She watched on, even as many of the male disciples had fled. They were fearful, probably hiding behind locked doors. Mary watched on. She stayed late into the night, late enough even to see Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two secret disciples of Jesus, uh, as they gently moved Jesus' body to the garden tomb. Mary watched. She knew where that tomb was. She watched them gently wrap that body in a clean linen cloth. And she planned to return to that tomb when she was able with some of the other women, as soon as she possibly could, to anoint his body with spices, to honor his body as an expression of love for his person. A beautiful act of devotion is what she had in mind, a similar act of devotion to the kind that Mary of Bethany carried out when she anointed Jesus' feet with perfume, wiping them with her hair and the fragrance that was given off there. Mary, wanted, Mary Magdalene wanted to do something similar. She wanted to honor the Lord. But Saturday was the Sabbath, and as Good Friday ended, it, it meant that she wasn't able to visit the tomb at that point to anoint the body. She had to wait until the evening of the Sabbath was over. And I'm sure that Saturday must have felt like an eternity for her. She probably just wanted to do something, wanted to do whatever she could to honor her Lord. She must have felt such pain on that Saturday. I was trying to imagine what it, it maybe would have felt like for her having to wait in order to anoint the Lord's body with that profound sense of loss. But eventually the sun did set on what must have felt like an eternal Saturday. And the stars would have begun to fade and the dawn would have grown closer. And I imagine Mary probably hadn't slept all that much on that Saturday night. You get a sense of the urgency to get to the garden tomb as, as soon as possible as you read some of the accounts like Mark 16. Look with me at Mark 16, verse 1. It recounts the events that followed like this. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. They should have expected it, shouldn't they? But they didn't. Jesus had told them to expect it, but they hadn't. An empty tomb, 
two angels in white telling them Christ has risen. I'm sure it must have seemed as though those events were playing out in slow motion. We know that after initially coming to the tomb, Mary Magdalene then rushed off to tell Peter and John it was empty. And it seems the three of them, Mary, Peter, and John, came back to the garden tomb. And we know that Peter and John ran to the tomb. Peter and John looked inside the tomb and then they left. And Mary is left alone in the garden. And John's gospel, John chapter 20, picks up the story at this point. Verse 11 of John 20. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. I think heartbreaking, heartbroken is the word that best describes Mary at this point. Not only has her Lord been crucified, the one who had given her new life now was dead. But also his body now appeared to have been taken away, preventing her carrying out that one last act of devotion. She'd waited throughout that eternal Saturday to carry out this act, to show the Lord how much she loved him. And now she couldn't even do that because someone had taken the body. But the risen Lord, the risen Lord Jesus, saw her pain. And we know he'd seen her broken before. He'd seen her in darkness and he transformed her life. And he must have hated seeing her heartbreak once more. And he draws near to her. Verse 14. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Wow, I absolutely love that special passage of scripture. Our risen Lord saw Mary's pain. He saw that her hopes lay in tatters. And so he came near, just as Will talked about this morning in his reflection at the breaking of bread. The Lord loves to come near, doesn't he, to those in their time of need. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? And once more, the Lord met her in her darkness and he called her by her name. That name and identity that the demons had ripped from her and Jesus had restored. And I'm sure he'd used that name, Mary, time and time again as she traveled with him from town to town, from village to village. She knew his voice and the use of her name sparked an instant recognition. It's like when a father or mother or husband or, or wife or son or daughter calls your name. They don't need to say anything else, do they? because you recognize their voice. This couldn't be anyone else. Mary knew it was her Lord. She knew it was her teacher. And I imagine at that moment, 
how that moment of recognition, all the heartbreak, all the darkness was swallowed, swallowed up in joy at daybreak. Jesus was alive. And so she clings to him and she doesn't want to let go. And then Jesus says something which seems strange, doesn't it? He says to her, do not hold on to me. That seems odd, doesn't it? But it's actually crucial. Jesus is teaching Mary a, a crucial lesson here. Because soon he will ascend back to his father and he says to her father in heaven. And soon he will pour out his Holy Spirit. And when he does that, he will hold on to Mary in a way she doesn't fully understand just yet. He won't always be with her physically. But when he pours out his spirit, nothing, nothing in the universe will ever separate them again. And by his spirit, he will take up residence in her heart. By his spirit, he will empower her to carry out gospel mission. By his spirit, he will comfort her and teach her and intercede for her and enable her to bear fruit. His spirit will ensure she perseveres to the end, no matter what persecution comes her way, until that day when one day she will see Christ face to face. And I love that because that's a truth that applies to each one of us on this call if we're believers, if we're followers of Christ, if we know Jesus as Lord. The Lord holds us in that very same way. We're sealed with his spirit. And Mary is commissioned to go and share this news, this wonderful news with the brothers, the male disciples, and to tell them of the coming ascension. And I just was struck by that responsibility she was given. What a privilege to witness an event that turned the world upside down. And so, as we close, uh, the story of Mary Magdalene's life is so much richer, so much deeper than any of the nonsense, the myths, and the legends written about her. She's a trophy of grace, a woman whose life points to a kind and loving Savior who can bring people from the deepest darkness to the brightest dawn, a woman whose loyalty, devotion, bravery, and witness is a challenge to each one of us. Let me finish with the words of Mark chapter 16 and verse 9. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. Let's just close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who could bring this dear woman Mary Magdalene, from the deepest darkness and transform her into a loyal and brave disciple. Thank you for the life and example of Mary. Lord, we're so impressed by her love, her devotion, her character. And Lord, we want to be more like that ourselves. Well, we consider that scene in the garden tomb, the Lord Jesus meeting her in her sorrow, Father, and her heartbreak was restored. Her heartbreak was transformed, rather joy and hope and that lord was an earth-shattering moment we thank you for that hope that we share thank you father that because christ has triumphed over the deepest darkness of sin and death we too like mary can live lives full of hope as the apostle paul wrote in scripture christ has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruits of all those of those who have fallen asleep but since death came through a man the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man for as in adam all die so in christ all will be made alive and so heavenly father we can cry 
Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not just our Easter hope, Lord. This is our eternal hope. May we continue in it, empowered by your spirit who lives within us and who will never let us go. We praise you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.